And I am of Russian heritage. So my grandparents, uh, while actually they, some were born in Russia, but others were already uh, grew up and, and some, and one grandfather was born in Manchuria in Harbin, where there was a very large Russian uh, population dating back uh, to the Tsarist period. So um, I had, you know, the language um, and I, you know, knew about certain things about the culture, obviously. And so I made the switch and I um, thought it would be much more intellectually challenging than medicine. And now I have second thoughts, but it's too late. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, this is Matt. Today, I talked with Dr. Suzanne Sternthal. She's notable for the fact that she was the first foreign woman in Tatarstan after the fall of the Soviet Union, and we certainly talked about that and her time in the Soviet Union and the history of the way, no, the hist- I guess you could say the historiography of the fall of the Soviet Union. And then we touched on regional issues related to you know the regions of Russia and their rights and the history of places like Tatarstan, kind of... Uh, contemporary Russian political theory, and specifically this uh, article by Vladislav Surkov that's been talked about quite widely in Russian society. So I think you guys will have a lot of fun uh, listening to today's episode. You're listening to The Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Suzanne, Thank you very much for inviting me. The question that I think people like you and I, people who get interested in, in Russia and Eastern Europe and the fo- mm-hmm. former Soviet states, the kind of the, the question we're condemned to answer is, well, how, you know, how did you get into it? How did you get started with it? Um, and so I know it's the question that you've been asked so many times, yes. but I think it's very important for our yeah. viewers to just I, kind of tell the story of yeah. how you got interested in the Soviet mm-hmm. Union and, and, and Russian studies. Right. Well, I was um, in college in the end of the 70s and early 80s. And um, actually, I was intent on going uh, into medical school, sort of a medical program. But really, it occurred to me that the real problem facing the world at the time was the nuclear tension and confrontation between the Soviet Union and the United States. And I am of Russian heritage, so my grandparents, um, uh, while actually they, some were born in Russia, but others were already uh, grew up, and and some and one grandfather was born in Manchuria in Harbin, where there was a very large Russian uh, population dating back uh, to the Tsarist period. So um, I had you know, the language. Um, And I, you know, knew about certain things about the culture, obviously. And so I made the switch and I um, thought it would be much more intellectually challenging than medicine. And now I have second thoughts, but it's too late. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. And so, and you kind of made this choice and you took this different path than you were expecting. And then when did you end up making it to the Soviet Union for the first time? Um, It was in 1986. So it was the height of uh, Perestroika under Gorbachev. But it wasn't really, um, it was just getting started. So it wasn't the height. Right. Um, It was just sort of beginning because um, I went uh, with the, uh, what was known then as the ACTR 
program with the Pushkin Institute. And um, ACTR for our listeners, it's the American Council of Teachers, Teachers of, of Russian. Russian. Exactly right. right. I, I participated, participated in ACTR programs myself. So, okay, yeah. so uh, it was with them, and actually, one of the um, uh, students uh, who was uh, among our group uh, was of uh, Jewish background, and actually was deported for who knows what reason, but the feeling was that it was uh, anti-Semitic and, I don't know, somebody took a dislike to, dislike to him. So uh, it was fairly tense, but I, uh, being an adventurous sort, um, spent you know some time in the classroom, but really what was exciting for me was making friends among uh, Russians more or less my age, and I ended up spending a lot of time with them and really learning a lot about um, uh, life. And of course, at the time, there was this uh, caste system in the sense that foreigners had a lot of privileges that the Russians never, you know, uh, could could even hope for in terms of the Birioska stores and getting, you know, good food. And at the time, you know, food wasn't that plentiful. There wasn't a lot of variety. So um, I was happy to provide goodies that they, you know, don't, wouldn't see that often and and had a great time. And so did you kind of see yourself as a, your role as kind of citizen diplomacy? Because you said that what brought you into the field was this idea that the major challenge facing humanity was this nuclear standoff. And so did you kind of see your role as talking with people and doing your small part to change that? No, actually not. And I'll tell you what uh, really sort of absorbed me while I was there. Um, I, of course, uh, grew up with a very antiquated sort of Russian 19th century culture. (laughs) You know, (laughs) when my mom had come to visit a while, I mean, you know, later she was, you know, said that, my God, you speak like Pushkin. You know, no one really speaks like you. Um, So for me... I did notice a difference culturally. I really, really felt a cultural distinction. And there were points which were similar, but not as many as I had hoped for. I really thought I would come and feel totally comfortable here. And um, while I made uh, pretty good friends, there was always this sort of, I don't know, sort of an edge. And I really... um, could possibly attribute it to uh, just, um, I don't know what, actually, but there was that hedge. I mean, it doesn't come to mind what I could attribute it to at the moment. But So it was interesting to really get to know another culture, and the Soviet Union was indeed a different culture. It was based on a lot of the same touchstones uh, of older Russian culture in terms of the literature, of course, in terms of the music, in terms of theater and um, and dance. Um, but uh, the way people uh, were was different. However, I have to comment that I did find that the Russian, the Soviet people were just much more hospitable and much sort of... Um, welcoming of a foreigner than I found when I went uh, with my family to live uh, for five years in 2008. Okay. Um, they were not that 
really interested in foreigners and they were not that hospitable. And and there was a pronounced brutality, um, believe it or not, in 2008 among yeah. uh, between the people, among the people. Do, do you think that has something to do with Soviet I- ideology and this, uh, this idea of Druzhba Narodov or these ideas of like Adkriti Sovietsky Narod? What do you in, think? In what terms you, of what? About why they were so much more welcoming in Soviet times than in... No, no, no. Actually, sort of... Oh, in Soviet times. Uh, well, because I think a lot of people were really curious... Curiosity. ...about yeah. finding things out. I mean, I was sitting on the park bench... And so I had this little old man come uh, next to me. He says, you know, I don't mean to be rude or forward or anything, but I have to understand, you know, how does the West um, deal with, you know, sex? (laughs) (laughs) He just like was really curious and he just wanted to have this... (laughs) You know, someone yeah. tell them straightforwardly, um, more well, how what the attitudes were in the right. West, because I don't know what he heard from the Soviet Union. I don't right. know, some degenerate something or other, probably. But anyway, um, so you would get these really uh, very interesting, curious interactions, um, some uh, sort of uh, naive in some ways. Um, and I can tell you when we get to my little Tatarstan adventure, I can yeah. um, tell you about some of those, also somewhat naive. Um, but it was, um, n- I wouldn't say it was really Druzhba Naroda or anything right. like that, as much as it was just plain curiosity. And, and they were still, even in 86, there wasn't free media, there wasn't free television, there wasn't <clears throat> free radio. I mean, there was nothing. All information was still very much right. controlled. Right. And so then you left the, the Soviet Union at that time in 86. And what did you do when you got back after being in the Soviet Union? Well, I mean, time? I was in graduate school. I was... Um, what were you researching uh, or writing about during that time? Um, well, I was interested in um, sort of my, my interest shifted somewhat into looking at the uh, military, Soviet military political role not just pure weapons and numbers and doctrine, but really more their political role in Russia. And um, I ended up uh, uh, publishing um, my research, which was um, a mouthful, the title, which was Gorbachev's um, uh, Reforms, Destalinization Through Demilitarization. But it was a very interesting tack to look at the military involvement and how Gorbachev set out and realizing not only that Russia couldn't go on like this because the KGB informed uh, other leaders that this was not sustainable, but really how he came to realize that the worldview had to be changed um, among the officials. And in the first instance, certain um, canons of the Marxist-Leninist ideology had to undergo total change, and the first of which was about the class war. Now, we think here in the West, oh, well, nobody really believed it. This was just all sort of pro forma. People really didn't subscribe to any of that. But I found in my research that... um, uh, that wasn't the case with respect to the military and many in the political establishment, especially those who were more conservative and not really open to the West. What role do you think the war in Afghanistan and Gorbachev's decision to withdraw 
the Soviet troops played in this process and kind of the way the Soviet Union ended up falling apart? Well, I don't think that it had a very large role. I, I mean, it had an impact. And then dealing with the Afghan veterans was something that I think was not really done, you know, very well. Um, and it was really sort of, uh, yes, they pulled out, but they really weren't paying a lot of attention to uh, the aftermath or the consequences. They were really focusing on um, uh, changing the system. Now, uh, Gorbachev's idea was he wanted to make communism a popular alternative for the population along the lines of Berlinguer of Italy, a communist leader who actually won elections. And, and he wanted communism to just be um, rejuvenated and made relevant because he found it was no longer so. And so that really was the focus. And interestingly, sort of in retrospect, um, a lot of the uh, reformers of the time um, – when they sort of assessed what happened under Gorbachev and so on, they make the comment um, that there wasn't really, and in the 90s, it continued into the 90s, uh, that there wasn't a lot of attention paid to building institutions, independent institutions, and too much focus was really um, um uh, put on economics, especially in the 90s. Yeah. And Gorbachev, he was yeah. still dealing with the politics. Yeah, that's fascinating because I feel like, you know, for me, at least when I was growing up, the way that the fall of the Soviet Union was told kind of in our history books was that, you know, we bankrupted them and it was all about uh, economics. And it wasn't until, you know, I started studying and then also when I went to Russia and really got into the history did I realize that it. I think that that, that telling is just very just one part of the story, right? I think the way you described it, where it's much more off of the personal decisions of the political leaders and their ideologies and these these changes that... Yeah, that they, they really were um, not prepared to... Well, Gorbachev did a great deal in sort of shepherding these changes, and the West um, and the foreign leaders of the time, um, in the first instance, I would say, uh, Baker and uh, Secretary Baker initially Ronald Reagan and then George uh, Sr., George Bush Sr., and um, Helmut Kohl and Margaret Thatcher and all of that really were very delicate uh, in terms of dealing with Gorbachev and the difficulties that uh, he was facing. But one of the things I do want to uh, comment your uh, point about that we bankrupted them. We didn't bankrupt them. And indeed... Um, I'm not saying that it was all that well done, but a lot of good things were done in the 90s with the real um, uh, motivation to really help uh, the Soviet Union or the, uh, the Russians to get back on their feet in the 90s. And um, there were setting up uh, Internet uh, uh Areas and libraries all in many, many regions, Absolutely, which wasn't, yeah. uh, you know, the case. I mean, there were a lot of good things done, you know, women's um, organizations to protect the abuse of women and all kinds of things that were Absolutely, really, really yeah. well done. But what wasn't managed, I guess, really well and perhaps um, not really understood is, I would say, how wily and greedy some of the Russians 
uh, who saw opportunities to take advantage of that um, sort of flexible or somewhat chaotic system for their own benefit. And uh, somehow control of that was really lost. And I don't think because it evolved so quickly, right. so no one could predict it. Now, of course, we look back right. and we see what went wrong. But at the time, it, everything was moving at so a very quickly, yeah. uh, fast pace. Yeah. Um, something, well, I, I have a few really good friends who studied international relations at uh, the St. Petersburg State University. It's one of these really prestigious universities in Russia. And uh, a friend of mine, you know, she's very insistent and she never really figured out why, you know, we had the Marshall Plan for Europe. Mm-hmm. Why was, you know, maybe I'm mistaken, why was there not kind of a similar diplomatic push to treat Russia in a similar way and really even get, it, get you know, have some sort of a larger government role in the way that this transition between societies and systems A larger would take? government role on On behalf part? of the United States in terms well, of investment. one, I'll tell you, of, uh, Russia would not have it. Uh-huh. Absolutely not. And indeed, this is probably uh, something that, on the one hand, is obvious. People have talked about it. Putin is always talking about it. But I don't think a lot of heat or enough heat is really given to the fact that uh, Russia was is an extremely proud nation with an extremely proud past and sees itself as always having been a great power. So uh, they would never, ever, ever under Yeltsin countenance anything like that, you know, like a Marshall Plan at all. Um, They did allow for USAID and their um, counterparts from Europe to come and and to help with a number of things. And, of course, the economic advisors that flooded into the Kremlin from the West to try to shepherd this uh, process in some uh, structured way, not right. super successfully, but uh, they and 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 it just went amok, as we know, and that is has been sort of a, a platform that uh, Putin initially had built for himself in in the earlier presidency. That he is the one who is responsible and has taken on the mantle of bringing Russia up from its knees. Um, which most people, as far as the uh, polls show, agree that that indeed is the case, because now they see that Russia once again is being taken seriously as a great power. And that to them is almost more important than living, quote unquote, normally. Material well-being, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I think the next place for us to go is, okay, so we talked a little bit about the collapse of the Soviet Union, and in 1992 or 1993, you wind up in 92. Tatarstan, 92. Yeah. Yeah. Tell, tell us about how that happened and what you ended up doing. Right. Well, um, I um, was taking actually a break from graduate school. I had done my comprehensives, you know, and I just needed a break in large part because uh, things were changing so rapidly. You know, the Soviet Union had fallen apart. And indeed, a lot of my uh, fellow uh, friends in uh, graduate school um, at Columbia um, 
ended up doing something totally different because everything they studied, I mean, one guy defended his dissertation and, you know, had to rewrite it because Gorbachev had announced, you know, the unilateral uh, withdrawal <laughs> from uh, um, the conventional troops right, in Eastern right, Europe. Right. And, you know, he said, forget this. Yeah. So wow. um, I decided to take a break, which was smart because then I did go back to it. But I um, had a friend uh, who was in the finance area, and she heard about this opportunity from uh, Hughes Network Systems that they were establishing an Earth station, a satellite uh, Earth station, at the bequest of the Tatarstan government, because what the Tatarstan government wanted was to not have to go as uh, having this special status um, under uh, Yeltsin. Um, uh, President Shaimiev uh, really wanted to enhance the independence of the republic. And um, they wanted to obviate the having to pass through Moscow to make any telephone calls, because this is probably before your time, if I may say, <laughs> but where you would have to order a telephone call through Moscow and wait days before it can be put through. And it was the most insane thing. So, yeah. I mean, this was still sort of happening in the early 90s. They were not um, yet um, on their way to uh, having um, modernized telephone systems. But Shaimiev was really, really intent. He wanted his own area code. So there was a company called SFMT, um, which was San Francisco Moscow Teleport. And this guy was the one who started Joel Katz or something like that, I believe Joel Katz, um, who began it, and then it was um, uh, funded by an investment uh, firm in uh, New York, and they were handling it. And so they hired me, I applied, and they hired me to be their liaison with um, the Tatarstan and the, and the Russians, because the Russians were involved. And to do whatever needed to be done in terms of marketing, in terms of ultimately training operators, in terms of um, customer service, and all kinds of things. So I was the Djevochka and the Pabigushka. Right. And kind of related to that, did did you, as a young woman in Tatarstan, right, which is a Muslim yeah. republic? Yeah, and I was the only one, the only female in this group. So the group consisted of... Um, uh, uh, three other guys, two engineers, and one a finance guy. And that was it, and me. And um, um, Kazan uh, was actually a closed city because they had uh, military industry there, and right. all military industrial areas were always closed to foreigners. But at that point, they had opened it up, and we were the first foreigners. Um, as well as there were some Montenegrins who were working on uh, building projects. Of all countries, wow. Yeah, Montenegrins. And so we were the the only foreigners there. Wow, unbelievable. Yeah. And so... So I can tell you about the woman part, and I have yeah. a very interesting story. Yeah, did, did you feel it was different from being you know a young woman in Moscow, and now you're a young um, woman in Tatarstan? Well, no, they really sort of... Um, well, found it really surprising that anyone would do something like this uh -huh. and um, really had a lot of respect for me for, in their view, being so brave and so um, intrepid to leave uh, New York City and come to uh, live in Kazan. But there was a real uh, interesting difference. Now, um, 
I'll say it in Russian, you will, you can, I'll then say it in English. Okay, there's this saying. Well, first of all, let me tell you the, uh, the story. So uh, among the officials around Shaimiev, they would always come to me to ask questions um, regarding politics and so on, and, you know, what the state of the world was, and this and that. And the reason they would never address any of the other guys, not because they didn't know English, I mean, they didn't, they didn't, uh, the Tatars didn't speak English, and of course the Americans, unfortunately, didn't speak Russian, but there was always a translator, but they never wanted to use a translator. But more important, they didn't want to ask their questions to a male for fear of looking stupid, but mm-hmm. they felt totally fine asking me questions right. because they didn't care if they looked right. stupid with That's me. Funny. So one of the questions was, well, Susanna, tell me, when do you think Tatarstan finally will be? be uh, part of the United Nations. So <laughs> Sounds like insanity. Yes, but. yes. Well, I mean, even then, there was no possibility for Tatarstan to join the United Nations. But this is what they were really aspiring to. I mean, a status as an independent nation, you know, in Russia. So it brought to mind um, the Russian saying, um, uh, which is, Kuritsa ni ptitsa. Uh-huh. which is a chicken is not a bird and a woman is not a person. Yeah. So which, that is unfortunate, but that was very much uh, sort of felt in some ways, you know, but I didn't, I, I'm very relaxed. I didn't take any offense or anything. I'm happy to answer their questions. And I, I liked the insight that I that I did get. So, um, but there, there was this... Uh, um, maybe somewhat condescending uh, attitude toward a female. Yeah, and now it kind of gets me to the next topic I've always been so fascinated about is just reading about, right, these kind of independence movements amongst the, 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 the you know, we talk about Chechnya and Tatarstan particularly, yeah. but this era in the 90s where there was this kind of idea that now the regions are really asserting themselves and now even doing things like flirting with independence from Russia. And when you look back, you know, how how are we supposed to understand that looking back? Was that just like total naivete that they never thought the the Moscow was going to kind of put them back in their place? Or did Well, that was a result really of Yeltsin. And he basically encouraged uh, it. Um, yeah, he encouraged it. And he has this quote, I don't know if I'll be able to come up with a precise quote, but basically saying, you know, um, take as much sovereignty as you can take. And so, indeed, um, in um, 1999, even, he started trying to rein the uh, republics back, uh, but with the greatest of difficulty. And so you had the Russian constitution, which was uh, written with the help of Westerners. So it has a sort of a very sort of Western bent to it, which now Russians don't think is relevant at all to the country, but that's another story. We'll get to that a little bit later, yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, and Russian laws, I mean, the Russian laws were the laws of the entire federation, which included the republics. And there was, a, you were speaking earlier before we went on air, I guess, about Udmurtia. Right. Only Udmurtia out of all of the republics actually observed Russian laws. Everyone else had their own laws, was doing whatever they wanted to do, and this was just not tolerable. And um, uh, Yeltsin had a very hard time, but when Putin came to power, 
he first thing he did, um, I think, within a day of being uh, interim president and before he was actually elected in um, 2000, December 2000, he um, superimposed on the Russian map these um, uh, districts, regional districts. districts. Yeah, the federal districts, right. And now there are nine with Crimea, but at the time there were eight. And this is not a new idea. This is an idea, um, and he appointed, by the way, military and FSB people, former KGB. And this is not at all new because under the Tsarist time, they had these similar uh, large districts to centralize control over these republics because from you know time immemorial the greatest fear of any russian leader was losing control over this enormous land mass and uh people uh and so the tsars had this um same system and i recently read um as this relates to research that I'm currently, uh, article I'm writing, but uh, where Gleb Pavlovsky, who was uh, an advisor to Yeltsin and then continued as an advisor yeah. to Putin, this PR guy. He was kind uh, of Putin's campaign manager, basically, the, yes. the first time. Yeah, Yeah. well, it's sort of PR, and also he kept his pulse, uh, the pulse of the... Uh, on the population, like what were the right. feelings and so on. So he, he's really instrumental in anything that, in a lot of things. And so he um, had uh, admitted that um, actually Yeltsin wanted to do the same thing. But by then things had gotten so far out of control that he wasn't able to superimpose these uh, districts. But Putin had absolutely no problem and did that. And that was on the heels of something also extremely important that only um, uh, Karen Dawisha really makes a point of, and that is the reform of the presidential administration. So what Putin was not really able to address constitutionally, he did it supra-constitutionally by radically, radically changing the function of the presidential administration and giving it a supreme power over all aspects of society, whereby, um, in fact, um, part of the document was leaked. And um, I believe it was uh, Ria Novosti which um, published excerpts of it. But there was a part that uh, Dawisha actually managed to get before it was erased from the internet, uh, which is not the full version. The full version seven books. And so this is just, you know, a summary, really. But interestingly, what is in the summary? There is a closed and secret part, how what really is going to happen sort of behind the scenes and sort of a part uh, that people expect, you know, like a democratic part, in quotes, mm-hmm. democratic part. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, it was a lot of um, a smoke and mirrors, but in the end, if one were to read this document, what becomes really clear is that basically Putin had set out his uh, blueprint from the get-go. Wow. And it's, it's so interesting, and you know, so few political scientists and Russian experts and so on really, really give it enough weight. Okay, wow. Well, that's definitely something I'm going to have to address and look at. 
myself. I, I know that just kind of, this kind of brings us to the kind of the most recent document that is of this <laughs> vein, which is the Vladislav Surkov's um, article, and it's called like the 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 long Russian government, and it's kind of it's kind of um, it's about how the new Russian system under Putin is built to last, and it, it's just a long rambling essay, and it says incredible things like that. Uh, the Russian people accept the kind of the honesty of the Russian system, and right. it's, it's the it's the Western systems that are all secretly run by the deep state, yeah, as yeah. all of our listeners, as opposed to no. the deep uh, p- uh, population or the right, the, right, yeah. the, the deep people, right, yeah. of, the, of of Russia. And so, I was just wondering, you know, what was your reaction to that piece, and what do you think its purpose? Was. Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to say, I mean, I've been reading Surkov for quite a while, and um, I find them unbelievably entertaining. He's super intelligent and, um, and is a real uh, firebrand and maverick. And, and also somebody um, described him as a postmodernist uh, politician or political uh, actor. And and so there are things you can't always take him super, super literally. I would say that the one thing that I found really uh, sort of surprising is that in many ways, uh, what he had outlined uh, in this uh, latest uh, essay was not all that different from his idea of sovereign democracy. Right. And let me explain what part of that is. I mean, he has a lot of very uh, entertaining ways of uh, parsing ideas, and he's actually a funny person in many ways. Which comes um, across in the article, because it's it's deliberately tongue-in-cheek yes, at a lot yes, of the yes, times. Yes, yes, and, right. yeah. so, um, and so, and, and so this part may have been missed, you know, because of all the fireworks of his um, stating things and, right. and stating so boldly, like, you know, we don't really need to, mo- we don't need real elections because we don't have real elections. <laughs> we have, you know, people who decide and there's this mysterious communication between uh, Putin, the leader, um, any leader in Russia and the people. And it's this communication that really results in the, uh, that forms the government right. for the people. Now, Taking that forms the government for the people. I mean, if you look at um, you know the uh, idea of an open democracy or a democracy is the fact that the will of the people is sovereign, right? Ergo, you can get sovereign democracy, right? And so this is what he's sort of playing on. You know, he's he's uh, poking fun and playing with these Western notions. And really, probably taking them really to their to the far end. Right. That uh, well, and if you have a sovereign democracy, then why is it that you need any elections at all? It's the will of the people, and so on right. and so forth. I mean, all of this is very impractical. Right. But um, uh, so there's that commonality which I found interesting. So in many ways, it is not new. What is new? Um, of course, is the fact that everyone is now getting nervous about what's going to happen in 2020 when uh, Putin's term will or come 20, to 2024. an end. Yeah, yeah, 2024. Sorry, um, when you know 
he won't be eligible to be elected again unless the constitution is changed or unless, who knows, unless what. Um, so in many ways, he's addressing that and stating that, well, there's really nothing to worry about. Because basically, the system that has been formed under Putin, which has been so successful, as he says, um, um, and I, obviously I don't agree with that it's been so successful, but anyway, he says, which has been so successful and, and popular, uh, will continue regardless of uh, who ends up being in power. And there are a lot of people who sort of think that others could possibly um, continue, but there, Putin, many people do believe will have to have some presence because he has become a real figurehead. He has, over the course of his time in power, uh, sort of um, built himself, fashioned himself as sort of Tsar-like, Tsar-like. And so there are people who were uh, saying that he will have some sort of governmental role, but more as... um, uh, well, just a figurative role, right. but he will obviously still have hands uh, in the governing uh, process, just as he had when he was prime minister and Medvedev took his turn uh, at being president. Um, so that, I think, is more likely that they will fashion another role for him and there will be some maybe prime minister or something uh, instead of a president uh, who will presumably be the head of the government. But ultimately, I think that until he really can't work anymore, I don't see Putin going um, away anytime soon. However, um, I have come across an interesting study by the... uh, um, uh, Institute of Sociology from the Academy of Sciences, uh, some of their sociologists. Yeah, it's good, good stuff. Yeah, who are commenting that this, as we know, um, uh, social uh, contract that had worked so well early on when the oil prices were high and the economy was booming and they had this, you know, tons of millions and millions in their sovereign fund, and everything was going really, really well, um, that uh, that social contract that, wow, you just keep your nose out of uh, politics, and you will get to have your cars, you will get to buy apartments, you will have all these Western goods flooding in, you know, fine um, French cheeses and wines and travel wherever you want to go. Um, so that has really changed because of the economic situation. And, um, and so the study indicates a real shift in terms of how the population views, not just the government, because the polls have always been very low for the government, but very high for Putin, just like they were always high. Well, there weren't polls, but all, the Tsar always thought was thought of as highly, and the boyars were the ones who were mucking yeah, things plahi. up. Yeah, plahi. Tsar haroshi, boyari plahi is yeah, the right. saying in Russia. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there is this shift that's taking place in part because of the pension re- uh, reform and also because people are getting tired of Putin. Right. Then this is a great segue into kind of what I 
you know, this, well, basically I'll say that there was this article that came out by this uh, political scientist named Valery Solovey, and it was this long interview in Moskovsky Komsomolets magazine, and he said that what really comes comes through in the Surkov letter is fear, and it's fear about what are we going to do with the Constitution and how are we going to change the Constitution to accommodate whatever this new role uh, for Putin is going to be. Do you have any ideas about how specifically you see that constitutional con- well, process playing out? Well, I don't think out? that it's going to. I mean, as we know, the uh, you know the ju- judicial arm of is Putin's under the Russia, control of the president's administration. Right? Well, but, is uh, you know very um, will do whatever they're basically told, and and the, and the people will be led by the nose to say, well, this has to be done. We're changing our form of government. Well, as I say, more than likely, although I don't know for sure, but the one scenario that I could see, as I mentioned, is would be where Putin would take on. Uh, a role of uh, some sort of figurehead, and there would be a prime minister, but uh, something along these lines. But I didn't really see Surkov's one as fear. Um, reading through some of the commentary, the Russian commentary about the Surkov article, um, a lot of people laughed at it. Right. You know, they did not take it seriously at all. And they were actually also laughing that so much attention was being paid to um, on the part of the West, as you know, reading, uh, you know, uh, trying to discern the tea leaves, um, such as they are uh, with Surkov. Well, um, Surkov, um, I think, is just pointing out that there's nothing to worry about and that Russia will survive without Putin as president. Putin will be maybe something else. He doesn't mention that, but that's that's a possibility. But, and things but will I, go on. And how lucky we are to have had uh, this system. Right, but I think the, the the point is that the very fact that he had to come out and write this funny article st- saying that is what kind of scared oh, yes. people. It's the, well, if it was the truth, then yeah. why did you have to come out? Right, but there's is- another. You know, some of the Russians were also commenting that. Um, you know, maybe he's trying to protect his own position. Yeah. Um, and what, in terms of like fear, he doesn't want to um, be, drift away into obscurity or something. Well, yes, yeah, swept away. He still wants to be relevant. But as uh, you know, an article like this would have to get approval. I mean, he could not surprise anybody in power with an article like this. So that's a fact. Um, wow. And with that fact, um, it is a message, then, if one looks at it that way. And I don't think Surkov is going anywhere. He's still very close to Putin. He's yeah. uh, running around in the in uh, Kiev, you know, trying to figure something out um, uh, with the conflict uh, there. Uh, so I don't think he's going anywhere. And he's just really an entertaining guy. I mean, I would almost say that he's sort of like... Um, uh, uh, intellectual gesture yeah. of sorts yeah, uh, for the administration. And, uh, you know, they need him. He's the one that gets people galvanized. If nothing else, you know, this will really um, get people to think about what to do, just as he did with his sovereign democracy um, idea. Right. And also uh, a few weeks before he said sovereign democracy or stated he had addressed, this was in February 2007, uh, 2006, um, the uh, young bureaucrats of the United Russia Party and was exhorting them to really come up with an idea because now it is, just as he said, we're playing with your minds in this article, 
um, you know, saying that, uh, right. referring to the West. Oh, yeah, that, we've gotten yeah. into your heads. Yeah, we're right. gotten, yeah we're, we've gotten into <laughs> your heads. This is what he said in 2006, in February, when he was addressing uh, this young cohort uh, from the United Russia Party, saying that the battle now is really for people's minds. The battle now is for ideas. And this is what you guys have to come up with. This is what he was saying. They were too slow, so three weeks later yeah, he popped do, up. Do, this, do it himself. Yeah, yeah, sovereign democracy idea. Yeah, I just when when it came out, I remember talking with some of my Russian friends, and what really was funny and also frustrating to a lot of them was just the fact that in, in Russia there's this crime, Padriv Konstitutionova Stroya RF. So it's like undermining of the constitutional order of Russia, which is used against people who don't agree with Putin's policies and you know basically political opponents. But Surkov can write whatever he wants, undermining the constitution of Russia and saying, oh, we're not even a democracy, even though the constitution yeah. of Russia, I might remind you, says on the very first article. Yeah. Well, he has a special status. I think that's really very clear. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing I wanted to get to is this article about the dogs, the stray yes. dogs in Moscow. So, did I mean, I lived in Moscow for a year. I must say, I... I do not remember seeing a bunch of stray dogs or, or stray animals. I mean, I'm cats. Yes, you see cats on the street, but a lot. I should. A lot of people let their cats. They're they're not house cats. They just let them out, right? And they just walk yeah, and they but come there back. Are, there eventually. are wild cats too. Sure, but um, was, did you come across a lot of stray dogs, well, or how did you get the idea for this article? Yeah. Um, well, uh, we moved as a family to Moscow in 2008, and we left after 2012. Uh, as a family, although Mark was still continuing his work there. But um, I immediately was absolutely stunned by the number of these dogs. And they would be in packs, and they would be sometimes on their own, and so on. And I really was really, really stunned. And um, I decided to take a look at it sort of from a more scientific, scientific sort of biological uh, perspective, meaning I noted that they were no longer like normal dogs that one would have as pets. They already started looking really feral. And indeed, they were only of a few colors. They were like russet, they were white, and they were black. Um, and uh, their tails were up and their tail and years were up as well, which is a sign already of a more feral animal right. rather than the droopy years right, and little right. uh, drooping tail and so on. So I somehow, um, you know, did some research and came across a scientist by the last name of Poyarkov. Yes. I can't remember his first name now. Uh, but he was at the Sveritsov uh, Institute, uh, which um, uh, in, in the division which studied wolves. And that was his specialty, was to study wolves. And he um, decided, well, wolves were somewhat difficult to study over time, but he noted a, a large pack in his... Um, uh, near his apartment, yeah. um, outside, and he started studying them, and he has been had been studying them already for um, over twenty years, like twenty five years or so, and really found a lot of very interesting uh, behaviors that were dictated in large part by the environment that they found themselves, and so uh, he and, and dogs. 
uh, adapt depending on the environment. And then I guess probably also in part on personality. So there were some dogs who would become like, quote unquote, guard dogs. They were wild, they were feral, but they would be in front of various institutions, in front of parking garages and and things like that. I should mention really quickly in the article, there's this incredible statistic that there are 60,000 wolves in Russia and there are 30,000 stray dogs just in Moscow. 30 or 35,000. Yeah, so there's almost half as many, you know, as the number of wolves in Russia of just stray dogs just in Moscow. So we're talking a really large number at that time. I don't know how much changed. Yeah, well, it has changed because, uh, well, anyway, uh, basically, uh, there's uh, under Lushkov, um, dogs were not allowed to be killed, the stray uh. dogs. And so there was this whole policy. And uh, this was, um, you know, in the 2000s and um, for as long as he was in power. And uh, basically, times were good, and that's how they started increasing their numbers because there was just more food to be had. But basically, so they're guard dogs, and they're these dogs that are um, come to the various grandmothers that feed them, and they become very territorial. Wherever they are, they're very, very territorial. And then the dog that is the most dangerous one is the one that sort of roams uh, by itself with, without any right. dog at all. But the feeding of dogs is probably the singularly worst thing that one can do because it does make the dog territorial. And so I lived uh, near Pakrovska Strizhneva in the northwest part of Moscow. And I would walk my dog and I got to know a lot of the Sabachniki, all the other people who walk their dogs. And uh, I'm talking to a grandmother there um, and she has her dog, I have mine. And then from a distance, we see an enormous pack coming toward us. Now, they are not coming to to us personally, but they saw uh, our dogs as a threat to their food food supply because there was some sort of institutional Uh something or other. I don't know what, what it was, but they were being fed there and they belonged there and this was their territory and they were running. She's very calm. And so she calmly, you know, takes out this little like zapper type gizmo and presses it. And there's no, there's uh, nothing. There's just, she presses it and they stop. She presses it again and they turn away. And I said, what on earth is that? And then she told me that it is indeed a taser. But if you press it first initially as she did, what it does, it changes the ions in the air and changes somehow the smell that the dogs are picking up. And that startles them. Now, if they were not uh, deterred by that, there are these little vicious looking little uh, metal uh uh, points that you know would put the dog out if he were, God forbid, attacking you. You know, for half an hour, I mean, it wouldn't kill the dog, but it would put him out. And so, needless to say, I got one of those. And uh, Mark's driver, in addition, had given me a metal baton that the Soviet uh, military would <laughs> use. That he said, you know, would knock. Um, uh, a big dog uh, out. Well, yeah. not just a big dog. I mean, would knock a cement uh, pole. Oh, I mean, it was that that it, <laughs> retractable. It was yeah. that serious. But it was really very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I had a running partner with whom I would go running every so often. And she was rather silly. One Sunday morning, very early when no one was around, decided to go running all by herself in the park, Pakrovska, Strizhneva, and was attacked by a pack of dogs who ripped her uh, hamstrings. Ah. 
and it was it was horrible. I mean, yeah, it yeah. was just really I, traumatic and a really horrible thing. She obviously she had to go I, to the stage. She had to have the shots, but um, uh, you know her muscles were never the same. Okay, well, that, hearing that story helps explain another story for me because I remember around the time of the World Cup, reading the news stories about how there were kind of basically death death squads that would go around and or were killing the stray animals that they would find in the World Cup cities and so they would go hunt they were hunting straight yeah. stray dogs in 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 Moscow and so on and so I think that you know today the number of stray dogs has probably fallen off. Well, I think um you know starting really I would say in uh 2013 the last time I was in uh Russia was 2015 um uh, I didn't see any stray yeah. dogs, no. Um, but it doesn't mean that they're all vicious. It's just that uh, they are turning to the wild, and that's what Poyarkov um, concluded, and that's what interested him. Sort of reverse de-evolution, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess I guess to end, um, I'd love to just hear uh, a little bit about what you're doing now, and maybe if you have kind of a recommendation for our listeners, something to read or something that you saw that really interested you lately? Yeah. Um, well, I am currently working on an article about um, the, what, uh, it's, it's titled um, uh, the Russia Civilizational Na- Narrative um, Reprised Under Putin. And I'm looking at the concept of state civilization and um, how it has evolved and developed. And I'm looking at uh, polls and also at um, the markers of uh, the state civilization, to what extent uh, they've been institutionalized as laws and, um, and uh, uh, policy. Uh, and I'm I'm about halfway through that mm-hmm. writing it. I'm already mm-hmm. writing it, mm-hmm. uh, but I find it really very interesting. Uh, with respect to uh, movies and books, um, the last movie that I saw at the recommendation of our son, who's at U Chicago, uh, was uh, Get Out. Get Out. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really don't like know. it. Yeah, I thought it was. You know, really pretty. Thought-provoking? Uh, clever. Yeah, clever, very, yeah. very, very clever. Very yeah. creepy, but yeah. very cleverly done. And a book, um, we were just on vacation, beach vacation, and I last minute grabbed something I hadn't read, but I saw on the bookshelf, and that was D.H. Lawrence's last book called The Rainbow. And it was um, a book that he... Uh, loved the most. It's the longest book, and it, indeed it took him uh, the longest amount of time to write. And it was published, I guess, in 1914 and uh, was deemed pornographic. Now, it wasn't pornographic at well, all. Just, just like you know, Nabokov was pornographic and everything else was pornographic. Yeah, well, it really wasn't pornographic. I mean, basically, the book is about, um, uh, uh, well, emotional and physical passion and how a person realizes themselves uh, with experience and through time. And all of that is very poetically written about the emotional aspect. So um, he was also, I think, thumbing his nose um, at uh, British mores, uh, which included, of course, you know, anything 
they were not that comfortable under the Victorian period with respect to anything really physical. Mm-hmm. And also uh, the idea of children, you know, being seen but not heard. All of I love the way he depicts kids in this novel. They are these little demonic you know, little animals, which I love, you know, uh-huh, and this yeah. is how the way children really are. But that's also like uh, thumbing his nose at, uh, you know, the British ideas of the time. And indeed, he was so disgusted by it all that um, he ended up uh, forming some sort of uh, community in Nor- um, New Mexico. Uh-huh. And is actually his ashes, his remains were, um, uh, are in Taos. There's some sort of little um, area for him. In Taos, which I thought was really cool. I'm going to visit it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, gosh, I think that's a wonderful way to finish off our program. Suzanne, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. I hope you'll come on again at some point in the future. We would love to have you back. Thank you. Yes, thanks very much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. The views, opinions, and ideas expressed on this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the show or the University of Texas. Thank you for listening to the Slavic Connection. Please visit SlavXRadio.com for more information and to subscribe to our podcast and YouTube channel. As always, we invite listener feedback, so please send us your comments. The Slavic Connection is produced by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.